Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. All right, here we go. Welcome to Loving Liberty. It is Friday, the 8th of May in this the year 2020 of our Lord. This is the first hour of our two-hour program. Thank you so much for joining us, whether you're catching the live broadcast or catching the podcast. I'm very happy that you are a part of our audience. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what is to come, because right now that seems like a pretty big blank check. Do you get that feeling? You know, what is American society going to look like the other side of COVID-19? We don't even know when that's going to be, but there's also that huge question of what is it going to look like? And I've seen a couple of different articles on the new normal. No one's going to shake hands anymore. The way we do business, the way things are done is, is going to be, you know, altered forever. And I have to admit, as much as I don't want to admit this, it's, uh, it's possible that's true. But we have a say in this outcome. And I think sometimes we underestimate just how much of a say and how much our consent is required before anything becomes, uh, you know, more or less written in stone. There's a terrific article by Anders Koskinen on intellectualtakeout.org. The title, Indifference, is Complicity in the Revolution. Now, don't let the word revolution, you know, throw you for a loop, okay? It's, we're not talking about, uh, you know, Molotov cocktail-throwing communist revolutionaries running rampant in the streets here. But definitely we're at a pivot point, and things are not likely to look the same on the other side of this crisis and all the other various crises that uh, are currently, uh, you know, coalescing around this fourth turning. So here's what Anders Koskinen has to say. He says the form that American society takes after COVID-19 stay-at-home orders, business closures, and social distancing will entirely depend on the attitudes of America's citizens. Uh-oh, somebody just put the responsibility right back in your court. Sorry about that, but uh, here goes. He says those who reject the Patrick Henry approach, valuing life and indifferent to the gift of liberty, will be content to trust the government for safety via its newly acquired pandemic powers. Yet anyone who describes himself as indifferent about the form American political power takes going forward needs to rethink what being indifferent actually means. I like how he describes this. Replace I'm indifferent with I don't care. And you realize that it's an extremely damaging reaction. I don't care about Steve is far more revealing language than I'm indifferent towards Steve. In the same way, I don't care about America and its values is far more disturbing than I'm indifferent towards American values. Now, Anders Koskinen says at this time, it's not enough to seek to conserve the status quo. After all, the current status quo is one in which our government is allowed to monitor and prevent people from assembling, infringe upon our First Amendment rights, and even dictate what we're allowed to buy. And he says such a political climate is not one worth conserving. As political philosopher Frank Meyer noted in his essay, Freedom, Tradition, Conservatism. Here's what Frank Meyer says, quote, Today's conservatism cannot simply affirm. It must select and judge. It is conservative because in its selection and in its judgment, it bases itself upon the accumulated wisdom of mankind over millennia, because it accepts the limits upon the irresponsible play of untrammeled reason, which the unchanging values exhibited by that wisdom dictate. But it is, it has to be, not acceptance of what lies before it in the contemporary world, but challenge, 
end quote. Now, the problem with this is that many Americans simply don't want to step up to the challenge because they're indifferent to the moral, social and political decay of the country they inhabit. And the problem of American decay is due to this apathy, this indifference. Americans just don't care about America. And again, coming from uh, from Frank Meyer, he says, in an era like ours, the existing regime in philosophical thought, as in political and social actuality, is fundamentally wrong. To accept is to be not conservative, but acquiescent to revolution. Situations of this nature have arisen again and again in the history of civilization, and each time the great renewers have been those who were able to recover true principle out of the wreck of their heritage. End quote. Kind of sounds like he's talking about the remnant that Albert J. Nock refers to in his essay, Isaiah's Job. If you haven't read it, it is something that's well worth your while. Back to Anders Koskinen's article. He says, is America in for a great renewal of its principles as the COVID-19 restrictions begin to loosen? Will we see a restoration of timeless truths of Western civilization, those which formed our country with its culture and system of government to begin with? Perhaps. But he says such a renewal out of the depths of the wreckage of America's heritage will require us to put in far more effort than most of us have been giving. Speaking on spiritual matters, Archbishop Fulton Sheen once gave a talk in which he said, So you see how important it is to have in the mind an idea to do all that you can, to work to the limit of your ability. Our world is really suffering from indifference. Indifference is apathy, not caring. And he says, I wonder if maybe... I wonder maybe if our Lord does not suffer more from our indifference than he did from the crucifixion, end quote. Now, he says, well, one can debate the sufferings of Christ crucified compared to his sufferings caused by an indifferent, uncaring, secular world. Sheen's statement, nonetheless, is apropos for America's current political climate. Who wounds the soul of America more grievously? The socialist who seeks to mold America in their own preferred image or the average apolitical citizen who is indifferent towards America. The first seeks to reshape his country. The second does not care about his country. So as the coronavirus retreats and the economy reopens, Anders Koskinen asks, will Americans fight for the founder's view of America? Or will we, will we, will we, I'll try that one more time. Will we remain indifferent to the excesses that government has wrought this year and in years prior? I don't know about you, but that kind of stings my conscience. And, and there's one part here. I, I, I'm not going to take issue so much as just offer a, a, little, uh, a little side note of my own here. The average apolitical citizen. I don't know about you, but, uh, but politics doesn't scratch the itch for me. I understand it's important. I understand it's going on. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's treated as if it is the single most important factor in all of our lives, at least by most mass media sources. Whether it's Fox News, whether it's CNN, I don't care the ideological bent. Politics always seems to be given supreme importance. And I'm just going to ask you to consider, as I have often asked on this program, what if there is more in terms of institutions that shape our lives than simply the state, meaning politics? Are there not other institutions that are equally deserving of uh, our, our efforts and our input and our support? Things like family, community, academia, business, 
clergy? How about even media? We're going to talk about that coming up actually in the next segment, a little bit about um, things we need to be aware of regarding the media. But my point is simply this. Those are seven different institutions. Well, six in addition to the state, but a total of seven different institutions that all have great influence or can potentially have great influence on the lives we live. And I'm not telling you, therefore, you should, you know, reject politics, you know, as 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 I am starting to do in my life. All I'm saying is consider that there are other areas and other places where we can put that moral energy and effort to work. And each of us only has a finite amount of moral energy to to spend in a given day. If we waste it all on agitating for this politics or that politics, we're missing out on some great opportunities within community, within family, within business, academia, church, media, etc. Try to keep it in perspective. That's all that I'm asking. I'm becoming more of a political, uh, I'm probably politically agnostic for the most part. I'm on my way to becoming a political atheist because I just don't see the solutions there uh, that, that purport to be there. And I don't want to rob anybody of their joy because for some people that's, you know, this is important. Well, I, I believe that Donald Trump is doing the best job possible. And I'll tell you, I pray for our political leaders. I do. I ask God to give them wisdom. I ask him to, to watch over them, to help them understand, to soften their hearts where necessary and help them be willing to make corrections where necessary. But that's not where my truest faith is. My faith is in, first of all, the God that created us and in the rights that he gave us, the natural inalienable rights that every human being possesses. My faith is that uh, you let human beings have the freedom to exercise those rights and anything that's peaceful, let them do it. If they're not harming another person or their property, they should be free to do it without having to beg permission and so forth. I trust that that will bring us closer to what, uh, what is good, what is right, and what is beneficial for nearly everyone than all the top-down planning of all the governments combined. In fact, I see that as the bigger source of most of our misery, truth be told. This is Loving Liberty. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. And just like that, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Please hold your calls until the next hour. We've got a lot of material to get through in this first hour of the broadcast and podcast. And one of my favorite subjects, probably because of all the years that I've spent working within the media, is, uh, well, it's the media. And how, uh, how we are twisted, turned, and sometimes manipulated by those who claim to be just telling us what we need to know. Well, I'm a skeptic. And that is uh, skepticism that is born out of many years of experience and seeing how things work behind the scenes, as well as uh, trying to get my own message out there and uh, trying to penetrate the filters and the different spin that is put up by so many other sources. So when I come across something that is very helpful in, in helping people become propaganda proof, 
I feel like I have a duty to share that with you. And I wish this was my own, but I have to tip my hat to AJK, K-A-Y. She is a writer, and she apparently has a pretty good head on her shoulders because she has one of the best explanations that I have ever seen in the difference between narrative and journalism. You've heard me talk about narrative before. It's important that uh, we understand when we are being fed a narrative, being told this is what you are expected to believe versus being presented the facts and then allowed to make up our own mind as to what it all means. So I'm going to share some thoughts here with AJ from AJK. She shared this on Twitter. She says, if you want to listen to the experts in quotation marks, listen to me. She says, I'm an expert in narrative and there is a 100% or there is 100% a media narrative regarding COVID. Now she says, narrative is storytelling and it's different than journalism. So here's a good explanation or a good definition rather that you should probably jot down. Journalism informs sans judgment. So one of the ways you'll know you're not dealing with journalism, no labels. If it's got labels, it ain't journalism. And here's what she recommends. She says, pull up the latest headlines. Look for the adverbs. Do we need to go over what an adverb does, right? Remember what what adverbs do? Schoolhouse Rock has a wonderful video on this that uh, can help us remember. But she says, look for the adverbs. Look for the emotional triggers, the pleas to fear and virtue. Narratives use those elements to engage the reader. And reporting increase in cases, uh, for instance, of COVID-19 without referencing the significance of the concurrent increase in testing. That's an example of an engaging narrative, as is the singular focus on COVID as the only threat to our way of life. Because when they report in this way, it prioritizes the story arc over facts. In other words, there's a plot line that's being followed. Disguising narrative as journalism is deceptive. She says it's akin to native advertising in which she's also an expert, not because she does it professionally, but actually because she won't. And it erodes brand trust, misinforms and steals the earned attention of consumers. Disguising narrative as journalism does all of these things. She says this narrative has a similar deceptive angle, but it's far more harmful because it blinds people to the whole to the whole of the risks that we're facing And it actually weaponizes self-righteousness to silence dissenting ideas. So figuring out why the media is crafting the narrative, that's not in her wheelhouse. That's up to somebody else. But she says, if you if you insist on listening to experts only, she says, listen very closely to me. The media is pushing a narrative. Now, if you want some proof of this, look no further than what our friends at Project Veritas have been able to uncover just within the last week or so. I'm going to play for you some audio from a recent release that Project Veritas put out uh, just within the last few days about CBS staging fake virus testing. Now, they're talking to someone who works with CBS, a whistleblower. Listen to that conversation. You're telling me you're 100% certain that CBS News, CBS News Corporation, National, staged a fake event. They faked the news. They faked the reality and broadcasted that to all of their audience last Friday on CBS This Morning. 
100%, absolutely. Only six states have reported more cases than Michigan, but fewer than 2% of its people have been tested for the virus. In our series on the state of coronavirus testing, Adriana Diaz shows how Michigan is trying to improve a system that has failed some of its people. But the governor says testing above all else will help determine when to fully reopen. Apparently, the news crew wanted more people in the line because they knew it was scheduled. Well, we knew they, they were coming. We had no clue that we were going to have to, like, do face patients. Did she tell you guys, like, hey, you're not actually getting tested? Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, yeah, she did. She just, just, well, just to make it look busy for the news because they were right there. Gosh. That's crazy. Well, I didn't see you guys had do the swab at all. I just saw you talking yeah. with them. And then I was talking with you the other girl. It. There were a couple of real patients, which made it worse. They probably just wanted it to look busy. Yeah. <laughs> it's my guess. Is this the, the fake line? Yes. Yep. That's it. So, so the people in the cars are, are not patients? Majority of them. I do know um, from talking with the testers that that one, one of them, one or two of them uh, were real patients, which added to their frustration because this line sat there for a while uh, so they could organize the shot. So they, they've made a, a, a line of cars with, with, with medical personnel on the cars as opposed to patients. Correct. And the viewer does not know that. Correct. You shouldn't be afraid to say the truth um, because in the end, you know, truth always wins. Wow. Now, look, that may not be the bombshell story of the of the week, but can we at least concede that this indicates that, you know, the, the media, for whatever reason, and, and I'm using the term media as kind of a broad catch all here, but to the mass media, the major information sources out there, the ones who give us all the daily news and have all these resources at their disposal are not above fudging the information or playing it up so as to support a particular narrative. Now, you know, obviously we can turn our backs on him. Well, I'm just going to turn it off. And actually, that's that's what a lot of us have done. Is I just I don't consume much in, in the way of mainstream media. It doesn't have anything of value to offer me. The only time I'll ever watch it is when I was, okay, what is the spin? What's the narrative today? What are we supposed to believe? But I don't, I don't take anything they say as factual enough or uh, balanced enough that I could get a, an accurate view of what the world looks like. And this is just one small instance. And by the way, I, I know that uh, there are those who would take exception. You know, there are people out there who, uh, who are actually good, solid journalists. I would agree. And unfortunately, it appears they are very, very much in the minority. But the fact of the matter is, if the media is pushing a narrative, you and I should be asking, why? Why would they want us to believe only a certain way that this should be? You know, for that matter, you know, it's not just it's not just the media. Look at what YouTube is doing. You know, pulling down this uh, this uh, doctor who claims that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci is is uh, fraudulent in many ways. And I don't know about the veracity of this doctor's claims. Some people say, oh, yeah, she's been discredited. She was fired. She was jailed. You know, you can't believe a word she says. That may all be true. But the fact that YouTube works overtime, I mean, they must have their bots working day and night 
to pull down this doctor's video. I just want to know why. Why is it so important that her perspective cannot be considered as part of the overall picture? I mean, if if she's as full of it as a Christmas goose, shouldn't we be able to figure that out? Why would they want to protect us from even having the possibility of considering that there might be some other information out or broader perspective out there than what they're willing to allow? See, that that's what leads me to believe that, oh, yeah, there may in fact be a narrative. So proceed with caution. The narrative that I'm spreading right now is think for yourself and exercise your liberty. And we'll be back after this. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thanks again for joining us for the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. If you don't have the app downloaded to your phone, consider doing so. Post haste. Share it with your friends. And, of course, you can always access the podcast archives through the app or at our website, lovingliberty.net. Becky Akers is uh, one of the finest voices of vict- of uh, liberty out there uh, that I've ever seen. She is really great. And she was actually uh, Sam Bushman's co-host, or guest, uh, rather, earlier this week on uh, Liberty Roundtable, which we also carry here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Phenomenal freedom fighter. She is really remarkable. And uh, when she writes something, I, l- I usually like to take a look because she pulls no punches. I know that uh, she's not going to dress it up for me and make it all warm and sugar-coated. And look, this is much easier to swallow. She she just specializes in giving the uh, the truth straight up. And, uh, you know, you, you better be braced if you want to handle the truth here. So when I see an article from her entitled, When Repeated Petitions Are Answered Only by Repeated Injuries, I thought, well, that sounds curious. What could she be talking about? And sure enough, she's talking about that insane SWAT raid of a bar in Odessa, Texas, just a few days ago. Here's the backstory. Becky Akers writes, Gabrielle, uh, Gabrielle Ellison owns a bar in Odessa, Texas. She mourns, as do so many entrepreneurs, that her business is sinking and her employees are struggling since our rulers forced her to close up shop. And Ellison says she's been paying her employees with no help from the Paycheck Protection Program. But she doubts her ability to endure Leviathan's economic embargo, saying we can't take it no more. We're not going to make it. So she reopened Big Daddy Zane's this past Monday, defying Governor Greg Abbott's diktat. Ms. Ellison invited a group called Open Texas to her celebration. And these patriots not only insist that all businesses are essential, but they have banded together to oppose the government orders telling businesses to stay closed and residents to stay at home. One member explained their goal in an appeal to his fellow consumers, quote, when we help businesses open up, support them. We get them some revenue and we get them back on their feet. We are only going to reopen the country by empowering people and helping them stand up and getting them back off their knees, end quote. Well, Open Texas proved that they love fun as much as they do philosophy when they accepted Ms. Ellison's invitation almost immediately. She also announced her protest on Facebook, dubbing it Bars and Bartenders Standing United. And it featured a photo of armed men in body armor posing in an undisclosed location. Open Texas will be here to help protect our rights as a small business owner to open and be able to feed our families, she wrote, adding that she's doing all this 
doing this rather for all bartenders, bar owners, customers, family, and friends. She even asked the sheriff's office for permission to host Open Texas. And get this, she was told everything would be fine as long as the armed individuals were not on the bar's property. Not a problem, as Miss Ellison owns acreage adjacent to her saloon, so she warned her guests they must congregate there to protect them from Texas's unconstitutional laws banning guns from Big Daddy's premises. Now, Becky Akers says so sensible a prohibition would prevail even in the absence of illegitimate regulations because barkeeps who appreciate live customers uh, appreciate live customers uh, from whom their repeat business comes and they would undoubtedly refuse to serve armed patrons. So it's not like uh, they needed another layer of law on top of it. Well, the heroes must have been thirsty when they when they arrived. They'd already supported other struggling businesses that day, including Anytime Fitness. Its owner, Clint Gillespie, saying he was issued a citation for keeping his business open. If they cite me, it's one thing because I'm the owner, explained Gillespie. I'm responsible for the business, but to assume they're going to come in and start issuing citations for anybody that's here? To me, he says that's a separate violation of their First Amendment rights. I feel feel like they're doing that just to intimidate and harass. Amen, Mr. Gillespie. He says Monday's gathering is not a revolution, but a response to what he believes is unconstitutional. Best case scenario, we're allowed to open, we're allowed to survive. But as Becky Akers points out, not if Leviathan has its way. The beast responded to these pillars of the community, whom tyrants have turned into desperados with SWAT teams. At Big Daddy Zane's, Ms. Ellison deplored this belligerence, saying, I'm aware of what's going on down the road. I'm shocked. I had customers come through saying, you know what? They have SWAT built up. They have SWAT built up. Why would you bring in SWAT on a peaceful situation? And Becky Akers answers, because, Ms. Ellison, our rulers, even those in the grand land of Texas, differ not at all from Soviet Russia's, communist China's, or any other dictatorships. Only circumstances and their subjects' varying toleration for injustice determine how much power they will grab. They decree, and we serfs immediately, unquestioningly obey, or they arrest, imprison, or even slaughter us. An arrest is what happened in this case. Members of the protest coming from a rally at Anytime Fitness in Odessa showed up at Big Daddy Zane's bar around 5 p.m. with loaded AR-15 type weapons, which they said they did not intend to use but had because it represented their Second Amendment rights. They said they carried in defense of the bar's First Amendment rights. Well, Becky Akers says, I guess these folks haven't heard that our rulers turned the Bill of Rights into toilet paper to alleviate the shortage. Such considerate autocrats. Multiple ESCO deputies and sheriffs and Texas troopers, rather, drove their vehicles, including an armored personnel carry, an MRAP, behind the bar and pointed guns at the armed protesters, telling them to put their hands up. Those who were carrying guns were handcuffed and transported to the Actor County Detec- Detention Center. ESCO Sheriff Mike Griffiths said in a phone interview that six people were arrested for felony unlawfully carrying a weapon on a licensed premise. Ellison was arrested for violation of a governor's order. One bystander was arrested for interfering with the duties of a peace officer. Eight people arrested in total. Now listen to the spin the sheriff puts on these dissidents and and his assault of these dissidents. He says, this was not a protest of their Second Amendment rights. To which Becky Akers responds, no, moron, it was a protest for those precious rights, for those rights. They're all that protect us from thugs like you. The sheriff said it was a show of force to ensure this lady could violate the governor's orders. 
And Becky Aker says, well, it certainly was, which proves that even an imbecile can be right sometimes. Now, Griffiths also claims to understand their side of it. Defying the governor's orders is one thing, but he said when you bring a bunch of armed vigilantes from other parts of the state for a show of force, I just got a problem with that. And since he's a sheriff, he can persecute those with whom he has a problem. Now, prior to her arrest, Miss Ellison had opined, I think some rights were taken away from us, which one of them was like a right to survive. We have to survive. And I think those rights were stripped from us. And indeed, they were. Becky Aker says that and that despite her placating the state in its forbidding of guns from bars, just as businesses that reopen in defiance of tyrants hope to please them by adhering to the lunacy of anti-social distancing, masks and so forth. Becky Aker says, look, I've never reopened a business, let alone one that politicians have shuttered. I'm therefore unworthy to advise these brave souls who have. But she says despots are bullies and appeasing bullies never works. Abiding by any arbitrary regulation legitimizes all of them. If you cede government the right to dictate how far apart your tables sit and whether you and your patrons must wear masks, you are tacitly agreeing that it may order you to close your doors as well. She's got a point. Meanwhile, she says we are rolling with frightening speed down the checklist that the founders provided for authorizing a revolution. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. Oof. Maybe this isn't the best time to be reading the Declaration of Independence, or maybe this is the perfect time to be reading the Declaration of Independence. As Becky Akers says, and so it has become our right, indeed our duty, to throw off such government. May Almighty God bless and preserve us when we do. I wish I could say that I felt more optimistic that this is something that is going to resolve itself and, you know, common sense is going to prevail and everybody's going to, you know, cooler heads are going to prevail and we're all going to, you know, figure this out and get along just fine. I don't think that's the case. I don't know why, but uh, but those who are using this crisis as a means of furthering their grasp on power, uh, they seem more desperate than usual. Maybe it's because they realize they only have a short window of time in in such a crisis to really consolidate their power. And I've had many friends, you know, assure me over the years. Maybe you've heard this, too. Well, you know, law enforcement isn't going to step up when there's tyranny. They'll know the difference and they'll say, screw that. I'll turn in my badge and my gun. No, they won't. A majority of them will not. Why? Uh, Probably self-preservation. They want that paycheck. They want that pension. And the ones who do understand right from wrong and are willing to step away from their job before they become an instrument of tyranny, unfortunately, they're in a very small minority. If there is a bright spot, it's things like this that will hopefully get conservatives over their near worship and adoration of law enforcement and to see the state for the problem that it really is.
Hey, once again, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. We're in our final segment of the first hour of the show. I I feel almost a little bit like I, I need to offer some clarification in the last segment talking about this SWAT raid on this bar in Texas and the uh, the peaceful protesters who happened to be armed that were standing by, you know, being taken down by a SWAT team. Um, I don't want this to sound like, boy, you are just against law enforcement in general. I have a handful of very, very dear friends who are members of law enforcement. And, you know, I, I have to say that most of them are considered pariahs in the sense that they are very principle-driven, meaning they regularly ask themselves, am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? And sometimes that gets them labeled by their fellow police officers as, hey, whose side are you really on? So if you ever wondered, is there a real us versus them mentality? Absolutely. And the police officers who look at themselves as peace officers first and look at the public not as, uh, you know, subjects to be ordered around or cattle to be herded this direction and that direction, but as customers who are to be served and to be protected as part of their duties. It's it's really strange. They uh, They kind of find themselves on the outs. And maybe that's one of the reasons why most of the guys I've known in law enforcement who I've been close to anyways have, have uh, been looking for the door. They're looking forward to retirement. They're looking forward to getting out. Some of them have already left. It's a crazy thing. Which brings me to the topic of weapons of war on our streets. Oh, my. When's the last time you heard that phrase, right? Every time there's, there's a shooting, uh, we'll do, we've got these weapons of war. We've got to get them off our streets. Anytime that uh, people are trying to pass more gun control legislation. I have an article here from Sam Jacobs. This is from the 10th Amendment Center. It's a lengthy article. It is worth your time because it will, it will change how you look at that phrase, weapons of war off our streets. Because it's going to give you a very clear understanding of what weapons of war really are and in whose hands they can be found. I'm going to give you the spoiler right now. The weapons of war that are increasingly found on our streets are in the hands of our police, not in the hands of the public. So it's kind of crazy, the idea that, well, that's why we need gun control to get these weapons of war off the street. It's the state that is amassing and using these weapons of war. Now, Sam Jacobs, writing about the Pentagon's 1033 program, opens up uh, the eyes of the reader to how law enforcement agencies are able to get their hands on Department of Defense technology. And uh, we're talking heavy-duty, military-grade hardware. How much? Well, between 1998 and 2014, the military hardware sent to police departments skyrocketed from just $9.4 million all the way up to $796.8 million. That's a lot of stuff. And it's not just guns. It's it's armored vehicles. It's area denial weapons and and a number of other things that uh, we'll cover here in just a moment. Why is the line between policing and military military operation becoming so blurry? Well, as Sam Jacobs points out, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And militarized police have become more willing to use their new weapons when carrying out law enforcement tasks. For instance, the number of SWAT raids in the United States grew dramatically from 1980 to about uh, to, from to, uh, 2014. 1980, you had about 3,000 SWAT raids total. 50,000 
plus in 2014. Now, that's six years ago. Do you suppose that that number of SWAT raids has gone down? Not so. And so he says to say that the militarization of police is nothing new is to ignore America's recent history, as well as the longstanding model of a peace officer. As the police have militarized and the Pentagon is is backing major players in Hollywood, the focus has shifted from one who keeps the peace to one who enforces the law. And there's a major difference. So here's one of the excerpts I wanted to share with you. What's the difference between a law enforcement officer and a peace officer? Sam Jacobs says the model for police and constables and sheriffs before them prior to the late 19th or the late 20th century, rather, was that of a peace officer. In many states, it's not even true that police are law enforcement officers, even though that's a term frequently used by the police and their fans in the Blue Lives Matter, Thin Blue Line and Back the Blue movements. Now, it's a subtle but important distinction. Is the role of the police to enforce the law or to keep the peace? Consider the difference between the police force of a typical American city and the fictional Andy Taylor of the Andy Griffith Show. The former is concerned primarily with enforcing the law for its own sake and catching as many, quote, lawbreakers as possible. The latter, on the other hand, is primarily concerned with keeping the peace. And sometimes that means looking the other way when laws get broken. Now, this isn't simply a matter of how pleasant or unpleasant it is to deal with the police. Law enforcement officers might be writing tickets in the middle of a burglary epidemic due to their need to enforce all the laws all the time. Conversely, a peace officer is going to ignore a lot of low-level habitual crime, even when there are clear victims like vandalism or maybe even loitering, because he emphasizes going out and catching dangerous and violent criminals. There's no impulse to arrest a guy who habitually smokes weed on a street corner if he's providing the police with valuable information leading to the arrest of violent criminals. So peace officers might have the need for a sidearm and a shotgun, but they have little or no need for, say, a tank to say nothing of a variety of nasty DARPA weapons that police departments are increasingly wanting and getting. Now, from here, the article goes on to talk about the origins of militarized police. And it's important you have this historical perspective. Because before we start talking about militarized American police, it's worth mentioning that the United States law specifically prohibits the military from enforcing laws in the U.S., That's why we don't have the army enforcing the law. It's why we don't have a military style uh, gendarmerie as is common in Europe. This law, the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878, was passed after the removal of federal troops from the southern states following the end of Reconstruction. And with rare exceptions, the federal government is not allowed to use the army or the air force to enforce the law. Even the Navy has strict regulations for both the Navy and Marine Corps regarding the use of either for domestic law enforcement. So he goes through, Sam Jacobs goes through how police became more militarized. And it started with things like the Prohibition era and, you know, the, well, we want to have automatic weapons because, you know, the, uh, the gangsters have automatic weapons. But the end of militarization, that first wave at least, closed with the end of Prohibition itself. But a second wave of militarization started with race riots in the 50s and 60s, the Watts riots in 1965. That's when the LAPD first instituted what they called SWAT teams, special weapons and tactics teams. Then you had the war on drugs, which brought more militarization to the police. And then the 1033 program came about following the 1997 North Hollywood shootout. 
And now you have 21st century police militarization. And this has gone into in great detail in Sam Jacobs' article, which, again, you will find in the show notes. You have police training with military units increasingly common. You have uh, all kinds of weapons coming to police departments through the 1033 pipeline. By the way, a great documentary to watch on this is Do Not Resist. They actually take you through the military vehicle yard where all these MRAPs are stored prior to being, uh, you know, dispensed to various police departments. And the guy who's in charge of, you know, cleaning them up, getting them ready for, you know, uh, for delivery to these police departments actually jokes around about, yeah, we've had to go through a couple times. We've had to, you know, had to remove like severed limbs and things like that that were inside these MRAPs. What? Why would there be severed limbs? And he says right to the camera. Well, they are, after all, war vehicles. Exactly. Brought back from Iraq, brought back from Afghanistan, and now ready for your police department to go tooling around town in. And you see things like helicopters, mobile command buses, $227,000 for a tank in Douglasville, Georgia. $54,000 for, you know, military M4 uh, rifles for Brazelton, Georgia. That's a town with less than 10,000 people. It's crazy. And then you have, you know, fusion centers with surveillance and snooping. That's one thing that the police departments have started to take on is the the idea that, you know, we need to be uh, conducting surveillance. They have stingray phone trackers. Oh, and don't forget the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, which makes technologies available to them like uh, human identification at a distance, evidence extraction and link discovery, uh, genesis for information awareness, uh, for storing a large amount of of data. And, of course, police departments working with the federal government in these fusion centers to bring it all together in one big happy family. It's crazy. And legit military weapons on the streets, but not in the hands that we're being told they must be taken from. No, that's you and me. We're the ones who need to be rendered helpless. What about the state? Why does it need this information? Who does it intend to use these these weapons against? I'll let you answer that question for yourself, but it sounds like something that merits a little bit of our attention. No? No. 